Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Good morning, everyone. Uh, uh, Great to see you all here. Um, I want to start off today by asking us a question. When you have people over for lunch or dinner, what does your table look like? On, no, there we go. If, if this was your table, where would you fall on the continuum here? Would you be on the bread and water side, prison style, make them tough? Um, would you be more in the middle? We'll do some quick calculations about how much this will cost. Or maybe, what did they serve us up last time when we were at their place? It was pretty fancy, we better be a bit fancy too. Um, Or could it be described as a feast? You're going to go all out, fit for a king, enough to feed an army. Where where would you place yourself? I found out very early on in um, my relationship with my wife Hannah that we we work on pretty different sides of this spectrum. Um, (laughs) Hannah would definitely be up here at the feast end. Whenever we have people over, she loves to put on a big spread and um, honour them by being really hospitable. And I'd probably tend more down that side, not quite bread and water side, but um, my response to extravagance is often, do we really need all this? Can we eat all that food? Um, So we have quite a different response in in this area of our lives. And today we're going to continue looking at that uh, that last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And we're going to focus on two people who also had very different responses, but this time to Jesus. Last week, Simon shared with us about the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and people were cheering him on. And then he spent that next week in Jerusalem. He was teaching his disciples, telling them about his coming death and talking about the future. And today we're going to focus on um, a passage, an incident that occurs early on in this last week before the crucifixion, in Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. So if you've got your Bible or the YouVersion app, um, please turn to that now, or just follow with me on the screen. No? Yeah. There we go. Okay. All right, let's start reading there. Let's start reading at verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, this is Jesus, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came. A woman Now, who is this mysterious, unnamed woman? In the Gospels of Matthew and John, um, we have very similar stories to this one. And we think they recount the same event. And John says that this woman is Mary. Now, there's there's a few different Marys in the Bible, but this Mary is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. 
It may or may not also be Mary Magdalene. Um, Historians aren't really sure about that. But this is the Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him teaching while her sister Martha was racing around trying to put food on the table. And this is also the Mary whose brother Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. So Mary knew Jesus well. She'd seen him perform miracles. She'd heard his parables and his teachings. And the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus loved Mary and her brother Lazarus and sister Martha. This is all important background information as we start getting into the story and as the action starts happening. So let's continue the story. So while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, before we move on, no, I'm having trouble with this today. There we go. Before we move on, um, the Gospel of John again tells us that the person who was mainly behind being so frustrated about this waste was Judas. So this is Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's in Jesus' innermost circle, one of his closest friends. And he had quite an objection to this waste of perfume. So Judas also had spent a lot of time with Jesus. He'd seen the miracles. He'd been under his teaching for three years. But we have, as we'll see, we'll have this very different response to Jesus from Judas compared to Mary. So let's read on. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So here we have Jesus and his 12 disciples sharing a meal at Simon the leper's house. And Mary, a dear friend of Jesus, comes in and she literally pours a year's salary worth of perfume over Jesus. And it drips off Jesus onto the floor, evaporates and is gone. A whole year's salary worth of perfume. What a waste. At least that's what Judas and the other disciples think. You could have used this money to feed the poor. Imagine how, we could have, how well we could have used this money. But the Gospel of John actually tells us that Judas didn't really care about the poor. He was just flabbergasted at this waste of money. You see, Judas had probably been becoming more and more disillusioned with Jesus as time went on. To start with, he thought, this is great. 
Jesus is talking about building up a new kingdom. Finally, we'll throw out the Romans and we'll build this great kingdom of Israel again. This is a cause that I really want to be behind. I love this. But then, as time went on, Jesus seemed just a little bit soft. He kept hanging out with these poor people and these outcasts. Instead of networking with the rich and powerful and organised this uprising, he kept annoying them by questioning them and upsetting the status quo. And besides, he didn't even seem the slightest bit interested in overthrowing the Romans. He kept talking about love and turning the other cheek and even paying taxes to these Romans. And then lately, he's been saying that he's going to die. I mean, that's not a good motivational speech, speech, Jesus. That's not going to get armies going. This wasn't the cause that Judas had signed up for. And then here, he sides with this woman over Judas. And he even tells her she's done a good job for pouring this perfume over him and wasting all this money. That was just the last straw. Judas had had enough. So he was going to either put an end to all of this or he was going to force Jesus' hand into starting to lead this uprising and he'd make a little bit of money on the side as well which he never objected to so off he went and um, organized to betray jesus while no one was watching now contrast judas to mary judas uh, mary had talked with the same jesus she'd walked with him she'd seen the same miracles the way he loved the poor and forgotten, the way he didn't condemn people like society did. And he'd even brought her brother back to life. So she loved him for this. But how could she show this love to him? How could she show how much he meant to her? In verse 8, Jesus says that she did what she could do. She used what, we ha- what she had. Maybe that perfume was the most precious thing she owned. And she used it to show Jesus how much she loved him. But what strikes me with this is the lavishness of this gesture. She broke that bottle of perfume. She could have just unplugged the cork and started pouring it over Jesus. And then maybe after a while, I was thinking, oh, this is getting a little bit expensive. We might just put the cork back on. That'll do. But she didn't do that. She broke that jar. That year's worth of salary in perfume was all going to be used on Jesus. She used what she could. She did what she could to honour him and make him feel special. And then the Gospel of John even tells us that, as we can see here in the picture, she used her hair to wipe his feet, to dry him off, to dry the perfume off. So she wasn't holding anything back. And Jesus commends her for it. He says she's done a beautiful thing. It goes a little bit deeper here, actually, because back in those days when you died, you were anointed or had perfume poured on you before you were buried. And this was traditional unless you were a criminal. And now Jesus knew that he was going to die on a cross. He was going to be crucified as a criminal. 
So he wasn't going to get this anointing. So whether Mary knew it or not, she was preparing Jesus for his burial. And he really appreciated that. Isn't it interesting how Jesus knew all these things that were going to happen before they did? The fact that he was going to die, that he'd die a criminal, that Mary's story would be told wherever the gospel was told. And incidentally, we're fulfilling that prophecy today, which is quite a a cool thought that we're actively doing that. The other interesting aside is that the hero of this story is a woman. This was very countercultural at the time. But if you read Jesus' story, women are often at the forefront of the action, particularly leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. It would have caused quite a stir to the people who were around Jesus and the early hearers of the gospel that women played such an important role. But I think it just shows us again who Jesus is. He doesn't dismiss people because society does. And it seems when you read the Gospels, the people that the society puts down and thinks of as lesser, these seem to be the people that Jesus elevates and honours and likes to spend time around. So this is the Jesus that we follow and this is the Jesus that Mary loved so much. So we have two hugely different responses here to Jesus. We have Judas, we have Mary. Judas was following Jesus because he was following a cause. Mary was following Jesus, the man behind the cause. Can you see that slight difference there? It's just subtle, but the implications for their response to Jesus are huge. As we can see with with what they do, Judas becomes disillusioned and he eventually betrays his master. Mary loves Jesus and wants to show it to him and she does this in a very extravagant way. So what I want to do now is ask and explore two questions. The first one is, if you're a follower of Jesus, why? Why are you a follower of Jesus? Are you following Jesus because of a cause or because of Jesus himself? It's quite a challenging question. What does it look like to follow a cause rather than Jesus? And there there are lots of different things, but I'll run a few past you. So maybe it's coming to church because that's what you grew up doing. It's the right thing to do, and that's what you equate with following Jesus. Or maybe you like the ethics that Jesus taught. Loving your neighbour as yourself, it's a good way to live. And that's what you equate with following Jesus. Or maybe it's the social side of being a follower. Coming to church, seeing people regularly, talking about real life issues, having people pray for you. Maybe this is what appeals to you about following Jesus. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. Lots of them are actually key parts of our faith. But the thing is, if we make these things, the, the social side or how I feel or that it's the right thing to do, if we make these the centre part of our faith, then we're falling short of what God intended.
And I think that puts us on a, a quite a shaky foundation if we're basing our faith on a cause rather than on Jesus himself. What happens, for instance, if we have a falling out with people at church? Or the Christian life gets hard and it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Then maybe, like Judas, we become disillusioned. This isn't for me. This isn't what I thought it should be like. And then maybe we walk away like Judas did because the whole thing has just left us disappointed. But Jesus says over and over again, come to me and I'll give you rest. Abide in me, follow me. Do you see the common word there? It's me. Jesus knows that for us, our biggest want and need is him. He's the one that satisfies us. And I think for me, this is really challenging. Focusing on Jesus rather than the cause. I often get very busy and I start focusing on what I'm doing. And then I start thinking that my worth comes from how well I do these things. And when that happens, I need to stop and I need to refocus from what I'm doing to Jesus. It's something that I constantly have to battle with because it's easy to just focus on doing stuff, not focusing on the man behind the cause. But how do we get to know Jesus and focus on him rather than on the cause? We always seem to come back to the same things and I think it's the same here. First thing is read his story, get to know him by reading the Bible. And as Simon said last week, explore it, wrestle with the text, not just read it and go on with the day. Second thing I, I suggest and I find helpful is surround yourself with people who do know and love Jesus because it rubs off on you. It's infectious, this enthusiasm and love that they have. And I've found that to be hugely helpful in my walk. And then thirdly, set aside regular time to spend with God. Talk to him about your day, how life's going, what you've been reading Listen to what he has to say to you, how he wants to reveal himself to you. And I know it's not easy. We have two little kids and we, I think we get into a routine and then I wake up the next morning and the routine's out the window again and it all starts again. It's, it's really hard to make time for God in our busy lives. But I think... For me personally, I've, I've decided that if I say that Jesus is the most important thing in my life, the most important person in my life, then that has to influence my priorities and my schedule. So that's been kind of a, a bit of a revelation to me to, to think, yeah, I have to get my priorities straight here. The hard thing is then to not beat yourself up about it if, if you don't get to spend time with God one day because something comes up. Um, it's helpful then to remember that Jesus understands. With Mary here, he said she did what she could. Okay? He didn't expect everything. She did what she could. It's not an excuse not to try and have a really good hard look at our priorities, but Jesus understands and he's patient as we learn. So slowly 
over time, with people reminding me regularly, I'm learning to accept and understand this. But it does take time. The second part of this question that I'd like to ask is, if you're not a follower of Jesus, why not? Is it because of Jesus himself, or is it a cause? Is it because of Jesus, or is it because of something that that Christian said to you sometime? Is it because of Jesus, or because of that church ritual that you think is rubbish? I think often we can get Jesus the man confused with what imperfect Christians do, or what an imperfect church looks like. So if this is you, I want to invite you as well to get to know Jesus, the man. Get to know this man that Mary loved so much, this man that many of disciples, his disciples died for because he wants to get to know you. He does know you. The second question that I'd like to ask us today is equally challenging. How extravagant is my love? Mary was an example of extravagant love. It cost her a lot to demonstrate her love to Jesus. That perfume was potentially her life savings, her safety net, and then by drying his feet with her hair, that would have cost her a bit of dignity. But she did what she could and she gave what she had to this man who was about to give his life for her. And that's a, that's a great example for us to follow. But how extravagant is our love for Jesus and for others? And incidentally, that's, that's about the same thing actually. Jesus in Matthew 25, 40, he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So Jesus says the way that you love other people, that's actually the way that you love me. That's, that's I don't know, a bit scary, a bit challenging. So this time, back to our continuum here. If this time food represented love, where would you place yourself? Would your love be like bread and water, the bare minimum, whatever that is? Would you place yourself somewhere in the middle? Oh, I want to be generous, I want to love people, but I want to do it in a safe, calculated, sensible way. Or I want to be generous and loving, but if it, only if it doesn't inconvenience me too much. Or would your love be described as a feast, like Mary, going all out, giving whatever she could, to show how much she loved Jesus. Where do you sit? Jesus' reference to the poor made me think about how I treat the poor. Now, Jesus here in this passage wasn't discounting the poor. What he was saying was, the poor are with you all the time. I'm only here for a few more days, so enjoy me while I'm here, but definitely don't forget the poor. Now, I've... Uh, met a few people here in Horsham and in other places who are sleeping rough outside and I'd stop and have a chat to them and maybe buy them dinner if they wanted it but at the back of my mind I'd, I'd find myself thinking 
does this person, is this person actually in need? Do they genuinely need, are they genuinely in trouble? And I'd find myself calculating the legitimacy of their need, judging their situation. And then, of course, my response to them would also be quite measured and calculated. Is this extravagant love? I don't think so, no. It's a far cry from what Mary did to demonstrate her love to Jesus. But so what does it look like for us to love Jesus and other people extravagantly? It's going to be different in every situation, but it's not me trying to figure out whether to buy someone a meal or not. And I know there are many logical and well-sounding arguments about how best to help people who are in need, but at the end of the day, are we trying to argue our way out of helping them? Or are we trying to love them lavishly, sacrificially, even foolishly? You know, there was nothing wise about Mary tipping a year's worth of salary of perfume over Jesus. In human terms, there's nothing wise about Jesus dying on the cross for people who hated him, betrayed him, disowned him. Who would do that? But that's the thing with extravagant love. To people who don't follow Jesus, it's foolish, maybe downright stupid. But does that matter? In terms of helping people in need, maybe sometimes I will help someone who doesn't actually need help. Or I'll help someone and it turns out that they're using me. Does that matter at the end of the day? It might hurt my pride, might make me feel stupid. But I don't think it matters. Who knows how God will use that? Of course, we we can't throw logic out the window, but I think this is a, a heart issue. Am I willing to let go of the control, of my pride, my fear of looking stupid, and love people extravagantly? For my family and I, this has has become quite real recently. As many of you will know, we're planning to move to Mauritius soon to work at a Christian school there. And on Mauritius, Hinduism is the main religion, And so having a Christian school and one that gives kids um, a world-class education for for these um, kids who are often disadvantaged, we're we're pretty excited about that and the, the prospects of that. And so towards the end of last year, we started telling people about our plans and many people have been very excited and wanting to know more. But some people have also asked us, why are we doing this? Why are we leaving secure, well-paying jobs here in Australia to go and live on support in a foreign country with two young kids. And I understand the question. It's, it doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. But I guess for us, it's a way of showing our love for Jesus extravagantly. For saying to God, we're going to give up control and we're going to let you take this. And it's been uncomfortable. Sometimes it's even been a little bit scary and 
we haven't even left Australia yet. So, yeah, who knows what's going to come. But I've started seeing over the last few weeks, as it's been getting more and more real, that this is where we actually learn to trust God. It's not when we have everything in control, when we've got our backup plans and it's all sorted. Loving God then is easy. It's when we're in way over our heads when we have to say to God, I can't do this. I have to give it to you. You have to do this, God, because I can't. And we have to throw ourselves at him like that. That's when we learn to trust in him. But you don't have to move overseas to learn to trust Jesus and learn to love extravagantly. It can happen right here in Horsham. But what does it look like for you? What does it look like for you to love people extravagantly, right where you are? In which areas of life do safe, calculated risks rule your decision-making? Giving enough of my time, my money, my love to ease my conscience, but not enough that it could be called extravagant. I think it's, going, it's worth going home this afternoon and the rest of this week and spending some time thinking and praying about this question. How extravagant is my love for Jesus and for other people? The danger with this question is that we can fall into the trap of falling, of going back and following a cause again. Thinking, well, I better do lots of stuff to show my love for Jesus. I know I fall into this trap often. It's a constant battle, but when it happens, think back to Mary again. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. She listened to him, adored him, built her relationship with him while her sister Martha was running around. But then Mary didn't stop there. Her love and her relationship with Jesus then transformed into action as she prepared him for his burial by anointing him. That's the order that we need to do this in. Not that we have to wait for our motives to be perfect, but we need to focus on our relationship with Jesus and then from that, from the love we have for him, these extravagant loving actions will grow because we know how much Jesus loves us. So as you go out and enjoy the rest of this Sunday and throughout the week, I invite you to have a think about these two questions. Why do I follow Jesus? Am I following a cause or the man behind the cause? What things can I do to deepen my relationship with Jesus? To fall in love with him, maybe for the first time, maybe anew. And consider your life. How extravagant is your love? How can you extravagantly love people this week? Not to tick a box, but because you know and love Jesus. Jesus who gave his life to show his extravagant love for us. So let's pray as the worship team comes up. Jesus, thank you for your extravagant love for us, for paying the ultimate price so that we could have an unbroken relationship with you. Thank you for the example of Mary, Jesus, as we go out today, show us 
where we are following a cause rather than you. Show us ways that we can grow in our relationship with you and fuel our desire so that we're not content with a casual acquaintance with you, but want to know you and love you deeply and have that love overflow to others. Thank you that you work in us and that you are patient with us as we learn. Amen. Thank you.